So this is the word of the Lord. You can follow along on the screen with me. I'll read it aloud. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Thank you for being seated. The other night, my family and I were looking for a movie to watch, as we often do as a family. And one of the suggestions that popped up on our fire stick uh, was uh, the, the movie The War of the Worlds by uh, starring Tom Cruise and a very young Dakota Fanning. Michelle and I had watched this particular movie a number of years ago, but since it had been a while and we've all kind of come into really enjoying apocalyptic-type movies, we decided to watch it again. Now, this movie, of course, is based on the 1898 science fiction novel by H.G. Wells, which interestingly was narrated by Orson Wells in 19, I think it was 39, somewhere in there, and it caused widespread panic. People actually thought the world was being invaded by aliens. But there's a scene in that movie where Tom Cruise's character, Ray Ferrier, is hiding in a basement of an old house uh, after the invasion of the aliens with his daughter, who's uh, played by Fanning, and a man named Harlan, who's taken them in and is preparing to fight back against the aliens. So to motivate Ray to join him, he tells him that uh, in his former job, he was an ambulance driver, and he says this. He says, Ray, you know the ones who make it? The ones who make it to the hospital before they flatline, they're the ones who keep their eyes open. The ones who make it are the ones who keep their eyes open, who keep looking up, who keep thinking. They're the ones that survive. We can't lose our heads, Ray. As I was watching the movie, of course, I was thinking about this sermon text that uh, I'd be preaching today, and I, I couldn't help but thinking about this church in first century Corinth. 
to me, they're a lot like the person in the ambulance who is sick and who is requiring triage. They become so infected by the world, and Paul is sort of like a, an EMT in the ambulance, and, and he's desperate to keep them attentive. He's, he's desperate to keep their eyes open, to, to keep them thinking. He's, he's trying to get them to, to look up and to, to keep them from flatlining. And so like a good medical technician, Paul is carefully diagnosing all the areas where they are wounded and is treating them with the healing medicine of the gospel. So far in this book, we've already taken a look at several of the quote-unquote diseases that this church is suffering from. Last week in chapter 5, Aaron showed us that this, uh, Paul's response to uh, the, the church's uh, uh, sexual immorality that they've allowed to creep into the church. Uh, we're not going to be done with that yet. That'll be the rest of our chapter in chapter 6 in a few weeks. And so back then, Sunday, you saw that he triaged the church. He says to them, listen, this is not who you are. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. Cleanse out the old leaven. Purge the evil from among you. So today in chapter 6, Paul is responding to yet a different issue that he has heard about there in the church. Of course, he's not there. He's writing to this church. He's learned that some believers in the church were attempting to settle their grievances outside of the believing community. One believer has taken up a lawsuit with another believer in the church. And so once again, to keep this church from flatlining, to keep their eyes open, Paul further triages this body by providing the urgent treatment of the gospel, by reminding them of who they are. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of this sermon is a simple one, and it really does characterize these two chapters, chapters 5 and 6. We'll just call it gospel triage. Gospel triage. And friends, this text, believe it or not, is meant to be a word for us. Now, I don't know, praise God, of any believers here at Grace City Church that have a pending lawsuit against another member of Grace City Church. But friends, it is easy, it is easy, isn't it, to rejoice in the gospel on Sunday mornings, but then turn away from it in dealing with our daily problems, like our grievances with one another. And friends, when our unbelieving neighbors see us dealing with our problems outside of our faith in Jesus, when our unbelieving neighbors see us dealing with our problems in the same way that they deal with their problems, they see a faith, they see a religion that cannot address the real issues of life. And our witness to them becomes irrelevant. And instead of being a, a viable alternative to the prevailing culture, the church of Jesus Christ becomes just like any other civic organization. Paul sees the irrelevance that's infiltrating this young church. He sees this church flatlining. And so as he's done, ever since he first visited with them several years before the writing of this letter, he fights to keep their eyes open to show them what the gospel says to their pursuit of self-protection, 
in matters of personal injustices done against them. So how does he do that? Paul waves before their eyes. I'm going to give you three gospel truths that already define them. And because I love alliteration, and for some reason the letter P, they all begin with P. So if you're taking notes, here they are. Paul talks about the position they have in Christ. He then will talk about the pattern that they have from Christ. And then lastly, he'll talk about the power they've been given to overcome in Christ. And so first, in Christ they have a position. Let's begin by talking a little bit more about this issue that Paul is dealing with in the church there. Again, Paul has learned that a couple of members in the church, and we said but way back in the beginning there's probably a, around 100 members in this church at that time. A couple of members in their church were engaged in some legal dispute probably related either to personal property or some business transaction that has gone sour. Now, we don't know the specific details of what was happening there, of course, but again, it was probably between two parties, one of which had been defrauded by the other, and we can make this deduction because in verse 7, the word defraud that he uses there means to cheat someone out of what is rightfully theirs. One person has somehow cheated another person in the church of his or her respective rights. And this is likely a dispute related to the loss of property or some kind of possession. Now, let's try to understand what kind of culture Paul and the Corinthians lived in. In Paul's day, it was common practice to litigate issues of this nature in the court of public law to try to win a judgment. You could say that Corinth was a lawsuit-happy city, much like our American culture. In the event that a Corinthian citizen was wronged by someone else, it was a commonplace to go down to the public square and present their case before the bima, the judgment seat, and try to win a judgment. Now remember, this is a high honor system, uh, uh, culture. And in a high honor culture, uh, it was uh, to your advantage to try to preserve and to protect your own honor. That was of utmost importance. Also, uh, court proceedings were a form of public entertainment in that day. If you had some spare time on a particular day, if you had nothing else to do, you might go down to the town square and listen in on whatever case was being presented. And, and so therefore, everybody knew about the cases that were being brought down. This is what you talked about at the dinner table. And so we're starting to understand, aren't we, just a little bit of Paul's frustration. Here is a, a few members of the church in Corinth, this beacon of light for Christ in a dark city, who is taking public what ought to be handled privately. And as a result, Paul is clearly upset because their witness for Jesus is being compromised. That's why he's so harsh to them. An example in verse 5. He really does want to shame the church here. He wants to, to, the, to have the church feel the gravity of what their actions are telling the world about the people of God. Paul, even we get a little bit of sarcasm there. He says, if, if they're as wise as they say they are, then surely this church ought to be doing everything in their power to help these two parties 
come to some reconciliation, to, to come back together again. Instead, they're airing their dirty laundry for all the world to see, and in so doing, they're shouting a message. There is no difference between us Christians and the rest of the citizens of Corinth. So with this passion in mind, and with this, this desire to preserve the integrity of the church before the world, Paul throws this first reality, this first gospel implication to this church in hopes of opening this church's eyes to keep their eyes open so they don't flatline. And he asks them in verse 2, and we see what that is. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Okay, so what's Paul doing here? Once again, he's helping his brothers and sisters see, just as he did in chapter 5, how they are not living in accord with what's already true of them. And to do this, he reminds them of how they fit in on the timeline of redemptive history. Now, friends, listen. I'm just going to put this out here. If we're struggling in some way, if we're struggling in some particular area of life, some particular problem that's really just weighing us down, chances are we don't see ourselves in the way that the Bible talks about us. Chances are we're looking really closely at ourselves and not enough about what God says about us. Paul says the people of God one day are going to participate in the judgment of man and angel when Christ returns. Now, where does Paul get this from? Well, he probably has a lot of the Old Testament in his mind. In his mind. He's probably thinking about Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. There's a passage there that says the judgment uh, uh, will be given to the saints of God. Uh, there was also a lot of Jewish apocalyptic literature at the time that talked about the saints having a, a role in the judgment, God's judgment of the world. We remember Jesus when he told his disciples that they would also sit on the 12 thrones judging the, the nation, the tribes of Israel. Revelation 2, Jesus promised the church in Thyatira that the one who conquers, he will give him authority over the nation. So it seems like, and Paul doesn't go into detail at all, it seems as though believers will participate in the last day judgment of God of all things in some way. Though for now, as Aaron told us last week in chapter 5, the church's judgment of the world is outside of our jurisdiction. That's not for us right now. Our judgment right now lies within the church for the good of one another. But in the end, Paul is not attempting to articulate truths about the church's role in end time matters. No, he wants this church to see the startling inconsistency between who they are and what they're doing between their identity and their behavior. These brothers and sisters, says Paul, will one day administer God's judgment over the whole universe. Yet they can't help to 
brothers, resolve a grievance that one has with the other. It's indefensible, Paul says. Now, now please don't misunderstand. We, we, we're a very legal society. We think about things like this. Paul is not saying that believers are never to be involved in lawsuits. There may be times when a Christian faces certain issues that demand the intervention of the laws of the land and the government that God has put in place. But Paul isn't talking about law necessarily. He's not concerned about jurisprudence. He is disturbed that there seems to be zero anticipation in this church of the glorious future that Christ has purchased for his people. And as a result, they are dead set on getting this status that they have and preserving this status and, and keeping this position in the here and now. And as a result, they're putting at risk their unity. They're putting at risk their witness. You see, dear friends, this is true of the Corinthians, but it's also true of the church in every age. When the people of God forget that they are the sons of God, we will always be fighting for a position that we already have. And our blind amnesia, that's a Paul Tripp word, our blind amnesia, we will demand that people treat us better than they do. And if we catch even a hint of disrespect from someone, maybe, maybe it was an ill-timed joke and we were in a bad mood, or a surprisingly harsh word, isn't it so easy to hold silent grudges until that person apologizes? Or if we're more vocal, we let them know how offended we are. And we might not take out a lawsuit. I hope we don't. But we too easily bring things, a grievance, a, a trivial things, before the court of others' opinions. And friends, that's where gossip creeps in. That's where discord and disunity creeps in. Or maybe we don't talk to anybody about it, but we get really bold at our computer. And we go on a public social media rant about how upset we are that this person said what they said. So there's this huge disconnect between what we really are now, friends, and the position that we're trying to somehow recover in the eyes of our fellow men. Friends, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says that God made us alive together with Christ, that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Seated. Spiritually, we are seated with Jesus. All of you are seated. You know what happens when we're seated? We're at rest. We're not moving about. We're not using energy. We're relaxed. We're at rest. Why? Because the seat is already ours. The position is already ours. And friends, Paul's saying that what's now true spiritually, one day it will be true physically. And we have to look forward to that. That will be reigning with Jesus. Friends, do we work through our offenses like this? When someone wrongs us or maybe doesn't give us the, the respect we think we deserve, is the first thing we do to look up or to look out 
or to look down. Paul says, look in your spiritual mirror. Remember what Jesus has done for you, even though you deserved his wrath. Friends, if we're struggling with one another, God says, go to your brother. With love and respect, work through this offense with the same mercy that Christ has shown us. This will involve prayer. This may involve involve trusted counselors, people we can trust. But Paul says, if you have the Spirit, God's given you everything you need to mediate this because you're seated. You're seated. In Christ, we have a position. Secondly, in Christ, we have a pattern. Paul says in Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Do you hear what he's saying there? He says, whether or not the plaintiff wins this case, the whole church is already lost. He might get the judgment. But the very fact that this church has allowed this ordeal to get so blown up is the proof that Satan has won a victory. The church is divided, and he's discredited in the eyes of the world. Friends, again, the church is meant to be God's alternative to the plastic lifestyles of this world around us, this sin-stained world offers us. But when the body of Christ lays aside the mind of Christ, we're simply going to drift along with the current of our culture. I told you last week that I had the privilege of serving a sister church in Virginia. When I take long trips, my favorite friend in the car, other than the people with me, is cruise control. When I get on the highway... I put cruise control on right around the speed limit or so, and I set it, and I forget it, and I don't think about the speed. I don't think about if I should be slowing down or speeding up. I just coast along, and I love it. It makes me free. But a church without the mind of Christ is a church on cruise control. It's not assessing if it's keeping pace with the Lord or with the culture. And so it just coasts along. And friends, a church on cruise control will eventually adopt beliefs and practices of the world over the word of God. We've seen this in so many mainline denominations across the U.S. since the 20th century. In an effort to be relevant, churches have begun to lay aside God's word in an attempt to appeal to the unchurch. So very quickly, the Bible to these churches, has lost its authority, it's lost its infallibility, it's lost its sufficiency for all of life. And friends, when traditional cultural norms, like God's design for the nuclear family, like sex within marriage, when those norms are replaced by the new norm, and in the 60s we began to see the gender and sexual revolution. 
What's happened is as too many of these churches have begun to flex with the culture and have begun to reinterpret the Scripture. So today, a lot of these churches, some of which are the Presbyterian Church USA, some streams of the United Methodist Church, the Reformed Church of America, a lot of different types of Baptist churches, are dwindling in attendance because they're no longer seen as a viable answer to the deep issues of the heart. And friends, Christ is displaced. His teachings have become sentimental and sappy and optional. And people pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to hear, and they throw out the parts of the Bible that don't align with their newfound worldviews. And so we wonder why the church is irrelevant. We wonder why the church is defeated. Christ as the head has been replaced by a cultural head, a mind more concerned with personal rights and acceptance by the world. So when Paul says, why not suffer wrong? Why not be cheated instead? That's crazy to us. And I'll tell you why it's crazy. Because, because by and large, the church is so earthly-minded, we are of heavenly-minded, earthly-minded, we are of no heavenly good. We, we think more like Americans than we think like Jesus. As Aaron alluded to last week, what, what we're, we're most about the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's why when we read texts like this, we'd rather rationalize it away than ask, what does this really mean? What does God, what is God saying to me? You mean to tell me, man preaching to me, that if I have a grievance with someone, I ought to just let it go? I ought to just turn the other cheek. I ought to just let them walk all over me. I have my rights. Indeed. But friends, what if our rights as Americans are a direct contradiction to the word of God? The New Testament doesn't use rights language anywhere. This is not a biblical idea, but we certainly use it. My friends, ever since Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he has intended for the church to live and exist in a culture, this world, but to be separate and distinct from this culture. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. We cannot have one foot in the kingdom of God and expect to retain the benefits offered by the kingdoms of this world. The world says, in particular in America, demand your own way, fight for your rights, stand up for yourself, and if someone stands in your way, come at them hard. Is that what Jesus taught? Jesus is no sap. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, verse 38. We'll put it on the screen for you. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus Christ said this, the one that our culture is happy to embrace because he's a good man with good teachings. But if we want to fight for our rights, we have to ignore this. You see, dear ones, as men, men and women who are united to Jesus, we cannot escape the reality, as we have been seeing, that we are going to participate in his sufferings. We will be the refuse of our world. We are not meant to celebrate along with the culture. We're meant to go against the strain of culture. And the Bible is so clear on this. The problem is our conditioning, not the Bible. We believe we deserve to be treated better than we are. But this is to our shame because in demanding our rights, we lose the real meaning of the cross. We miss out on a genuine participation with our Savior who suffered the greatest undeserved injury. And without that participation, God's rich in attending grace and blessing for our need. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is hard to hear. I get it. Imagine having to stand here and say it. This is hard to hear. But dear ones, he's given us a position to anticipate. And he's given us a pattern to imitate. Being in Christ means suffering with Christ. And when we walk in his steps, that is where we receive his free flowing grace. But dear ones, is it, is it possible that in demanding our rights, we're cutting ourselves off from that free grace that he so richly desires to give to us? He suffered for us and he committed himself to the one who judges justly. And he calls on us to, to do the same. Finally, Paul wants this church to know that in Christ, they have a power. Number three, a power to overcome. Remember in chapter one, we heard that the gospel, the word of the cross, is the power of God toward us who are being saved. The ocean has the power to erode rocks, Lightning has the power to electrify whatever it touches. But God's power is seen most clearly in the victorious work that he accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for my sin and for your sin. And scripture never gives commands to a believer, dear one, 
that it will not also give us the power to help us to overcome. As Aaron has said to me many times, a forgiven sin is a sin that can be overcome. So let's go back to Paul's flow of thought. He's been saying that to wrong and defraud the fellow members of the body of Christ is to lose their identity and to participate with the world and not with Christ. So Paul continues to say, and this cannot be tolerated, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous or the ungodly or the wicked, those are all synonyms in that for that word, it's the meaning of that word, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now he's getting to his point. In other words, in demanding your rights at the expense of your fellow brothers and sisters, your, your behavior is just like the behavior or the lifestyles of the people around you who reject the way of salvation. Friends, this is Paul's harshest language yet. I don't know if I'm glad you're here today or not. This is his harshest language yet. He's saying, here you are, church. You're calling yourselves people of the cross. But you Corinthians won't let go of this offense against you. You're deceived. You're behaving like the world, like the citizens of the world who will never see heaven. Last week, Pastor Aaron gave us, in chapter 5, he read out the vi another vice list that Paul lists there. Paul lists another vice list here in chapter 6, or sin list, behavior list, which might at first seem out of place. And when I read this the first few or three or four or five times, this list seemed out of place to me. Let's look at the list for a moment. He gives three categories of people who are identified by their behavior. Many of these are repeated from chapter 5. He lists the sexually immoral, and he's talking a lot about sexual immorality in these chapters. That includes adulterers, which of course is people who are, have sex outside of marriage. Men who practice homosexuality, that word there means man intercourse, and it puts together, it's pretty clear. This is any behavior that Paul lists here, is any behavior that transgresses God's design for sexuality, which of course is meant to be between a man and a woman who are married under the sight of God, sexually immoral. Then he lists idolaters. An idolater is anyone who desires or treasures something more than God, whether it's money or possessions. So he lists thieves and the greedy and swindlers and extortioners. You could add drunkards to this as well, which is an inordinate craving for drink, but you could also add food or possessions or anything else to that. And then there's revilers or slanderers, those given to harmful criticism of others. God says in his word that anyone, regardless of race or color or gender or creed, who persists in this behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns as king. Anyone who rejects the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that God has provided to the world in the person of Jesus, Jesus said in John 3, is already under God's wrath and will perish. God's kingdoms, kingdom, and the kingdoms of this world, dear ones, are polar opposites. We live in a world that shuns absolutes and calls every wrong thing right. God's kingdom is a place where the ungodly can be made godly 
where the weak and the sick and the broken can flourish under his rule. And today, every one of us can enter in. Every one of us in this room can enter in by looking to the only Savior that he's provided to atone for our brokenness, our sinfulness. Jesus. But again, this list seems a little out of place. Why give this list? I don't think that Paul is trying to call out certain behaviors per se and then place them into certain categories so that the really holy people over here can easily identify all the really bad people over here and call them out. In fact, I'm just going to say it. For far too long, the unbelieving world has looked at Christianity not as a better alternative to their lifestyle, but as unloving, judgmental religion that is all about what they can't do. And the church uses like this and has used, used lists like this in history to condemn the world. I want to tell you guys, all of us fall in this list. We are all in truth, in heart, adulterers. We are greedy. Slander is in all of us. There is no one righteous, Paul says. No, not one. Every one of us is sexually broken. Every one of us is an idolater. Every one of us wants what we can't have. And even to this day, we look with lust at people that aren't ours, that aren't our wives, aren't our husbands. We fantasize about having more. We rely on riches way too much. And so we might not be embezzling funds, but we sure are tempted to skim a little bit off the top the first and the best that belongs to God. Paul names these kinds of behaviors to the Christians in Corinth to wake them up, to show them that had it not been for the grace of God acting on them, they would perish. And that's why he's not content to leave it at that list. He ends with this precious sentence. And such were some of you. These behaviors used to be you. You used to participate in these things. This used to be your identity. But he says, but you have been acted on. By God. You were acted on God before the world was created. You were acted on by God 2,000 years ago in the death of Jesus in your place to atone for these behaviors, to make his resurrection, resurrection life available to you. And in your lifetime, by the Spirit of God, God has acted on you to wash you clean of every sin, to set you apart, to be God's holy people, to make you righteous in His sight, to make you acceptable to Him. No, friends, there is no one who is righteous unless God acts on him or her. Dear ones, do you see what this means for all of life, but in particular for our relationship with one another? This means that we can indeed be wronged by others 
and then get up and go ahead and forgive them 70 times, seven times, as Jesus said, because the Lord Jesus has already moved to defend us for every ounce of punishment that our sins deserve. He's put the wall up. He's made the judgment. There's no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. You're forgiven. You're free. You're done. You're protected. And we don't deserve it. This is how Michelle and I had to one time work through some offense at a neighbor of ours. We moved into our home. We met these neighbors who are also believers. And when we moved in, we uh, didn't have our things unpacked yet, and so we had to borrow a couple of things from them, which they so graciously offered to us. And uh, the next day, we brought everything back, and then later on that day, we heard a knock on the door, and uh, one of the neighbors said, hey, you forgot to give us such and such a thing back. And so I, immediately, I, we, we said, oh, I'm sorry. We went and we looked, and we looked everywhere, and we didn't see this thing they were looking for. And I, I turned to Michelle, and I said, I really thought I brought that back. I think I remember putting it down. And I said, no, no, you didn't. And so I said, well, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'll replace it. And they said, okay. And they walked out. Closed the door. I looked at Michelle. I was so tempted to be offended in that moment. I, I, I couldn't believe that we're, I was going to have to get in my car and go out and buy this item, which was like a $30 item, but still. And then we worked through it. And we remembered that Jesus calls us to peace. So rather than demand our own way, God gave us the grace, this was him, to simply go out and replace that item. Now someone might say, they walked all over you. They, they had their way with you. Maybe. Maybe. But to this day, we still have a cordial relationship with that neighbor. To this day, we still talk about each other's churches, how we're doing, what songs we sang on Sunday. We still talk about Christ together. I would rather have a good relationship and have some footprints on my back than demand my own way and put footprints on someone else. Now, I say this not to gain your applause. I say this to let us know that God knows how to defend his own. God knows how to protect his own. He can be trusted. Psalm 25 says, no one who trusts in him will be put to shame. He's the shepherd who today is leading us by green pastures and leading us beside still waters. He is the shepherd who today is restoring our souls from the sin that once tainted it, and he's still washing us clean. He's the one who today places a feast before us in the presence of our enemies. So friends, when one of us has a grievance with one another, we have the universe's, world, the universe's greatest attorney on our side. We have the one who knows how to defend our case. And because we belong to him, and we're a part of a church of a whole bunch of brothers and sisters who love us, we are capable by the Holy Spirit to moderate this disagreement. Friends, in your life, is it time for some gospel triage?
I want to encourage you to, to open yourselves, avail yourselves to the wisdom that God has provided to you with your church family. We can do this, get this, without gossiping. We can do this with a heart of mercy and love. We can pray for them, but do not let this thing fester. Unresolved grievances most always lead to bitterness and disunity, which Satan loves to use to divide the body. Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Several weeks ago, I read this quote to you from John Newton. I'm going to read it to you one more time because it's so fitting. And then Aaron will come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Think about this person with whom you have a grievance. In a little while, you and your Christian brother or sister will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ 